Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I was accused of stealing 36,000 pounds. Joe was accused of defrauding the post office in a post office scandal. It was wrongfully convicted and nearly sent to prison. In what year did you take over the, the, the post office? And when I say take over the post office, am I describing that right? I took over basically January 2002. You get to balance day and it tells you how much you have or haven't got in the till. And to agree the figures, you either have to put the money in if it's short um, you, you have to make it good and it came up with minus £2,000 when I rolled it all over what they call roll it over you rolled it into the next balancing week I borrowed more money from a friend um, and then that's when I let the amount grow to 36000 and it took probably just over a year to climb to that and then when they rang up and said we want you to remit 25000 in the morning I'm like oh. I knew it wasn't there. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centres around the question of who deserves a second chance, who has the power to grant it and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. Now, for the past 20 years, the UK has been grappling with the aftermath of the notorious post office scandal, which has affected countless innocent individuals. In 2000, the Horizon IT system was introduced to modernise the post office network but its rollout led to a barrage of wrongful convictions for fraud, theft and false accounting. Despite technological advancements in digital payments and optimised accounting, the system frequently flagged accounting discrepancies due to bugs and errors, resulting in harsh punitive measures taken against sub-postmasters and staff. Consequently, Thousands of innocent people lost their jobs, homes and freedom. The post office and its lawyers attempted to cover up the scandal by withholding crucial information about Horizon in court cases, leaving many of the victims without justice or compensation. Recently, the Court of Appeal overturned the wrongful convictions of many former sub-postmasters, stating the post office should not have initiated the prosecutions. Joe Hamilton, a former sub-postmistress from Hampshire, joined me on this episode to share her story of how the scandal affected her. She was accused of stealing 36,000 from her branch and pleaded guilty to false accounting in 2008 out of fear of imprisonment. It took years for her to clear her name and in the meantime she had to mortgage her house and borrow money from friends. 
What she didn't know at the time was the fact that the post office investigators had evidence indicating she had never stolen any money, but it hid it from her defence. This scandal underscores the importance of transparency, accountability and ethical behaviour, particularly with those we ought to trust the most. You can also listen to my interview with Joe on my audiobook, You Are Accused, available on Audible. Click the link in the description or search for You Are Accused by Raphael Rowe to get your copy. Well, look, uh, you're, you're looking well. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Just to recap, Joe, what it is that I'm trying to do here is, um, you know, as a former miscarriage of justice person myself, I'm trying to put together an audio book which looks at what it's like being accused for something you didn't do or what it's like being accused by somebody, not necessarily of something that you didn't do, but just being accused where it affects your life, it affects people around you, it affects the community, etc. And I'm talking to a variety of different people who have gone through different experiences where they can share with me the, the emotional, the psychological, but also the physical aspects, you know, i.e. standing up in courts or, or, or having to endure like, like you did and your, your colleagues did for many years. But before we get into the nitty gritty detail of what happened in your particular case and the case of all those involved in this post office scandal, can you share with me, Joe, um, just a little bit of background of who it is that I'm talking to? Because I know that you come from a small village and you was a postmistress. Uh, just share with me what your life was like before you got that first dreaded I don't know, call or you made that first dreaded call to say something was wrong. So a little bit of background about who Joe Hamilton is. Do you want it just from when I took the shop over or pre the shop or, or what? Yeah, when you took the shop over, that, that yeah. that's fine. Or just, you know, who is Joe Hamilton? If you were trying to paint a picture of yourself for people who have no idea who Joe is, how would you describe yourself in terms of your life and what you were doing before you got caught up in this scandal? Well, I'd had 20 years as a lorry driver before that. And so I was all over the place, driving here, there and everywhere. Um, and then we decided to, the, the business was kind of, it wasn't viable. Financially, it wasn't viable. So we, somebody suggested I took over the shop because we'd have been in the shop in the village 15 years before that. So yeah, I took on the challenge of running the village shop and uh, it, I became part of, instead of being someone who is not there, I was always there. So that's how it started. And, and when you say village, it conjures up this this image, you know, this quaint British village, um, small, got its little post office, etc. I mean, where is the village? What part of the world were you in? The village is in Hampshire. It's in a lovely part of the world and there's only 500 people in the village. And they, they, the village had rallied to save the village shop. They'd gutted the shop and revamped it, but they just needed someone then to take it over and run it because when it's run by volunteers, there's no kind of constant thread to have any imagination. Everyone's pulling in different directions. So, yeah, along came me. <laughs> So this is a village, 500 people, everybody must know everybody. So yeah. you must have known everybody. Everybody would have known you before you took on this, this, this role as becoming the, the postmistress. What, what, what is a postmistress, if you were to summarise? Well, when I took on the shop, I, I only took on the shop. There was somebody running the post office and the so postmaster was actually in name only. He was an elderly gentleman of the village um, and he was the sub-postmaster and had remained there throughout the revamping of the shop and everything they'd kept everything going and he was just in name and and they had a lady who ran it and she decided she wanted to leave when when I took over a couple of months later she said oh actually I'm fed up she'd actually had a discrepancy which I don't know was anything to do with it but she decided to leave and they made good the discrepancy before I took over. So, you know, the writing could have been on the wall, <laughs> but I didn't know. I didn't realise. And, and when we talk about discrepancy, I've heard that word or I've read that word so many times as I've read stuff about what happened in this particular case. So in what year did you take over the, the, the post office? And when I say take over the post office, am I describing that right? Yeah. Well, the, the post office was inside the shop. Um, it was a little counter, all secure inside the shop. 
And I took the shop over in October and in the of 2001. And in December 2001, she left uh, just after Christmas. So I took over basically January 2002. And this was, uh, from what I've read, correct me if I'm wrong, in 1999 is when the post office started to introduce this IT um, technology called Horizon. So it would have been in the in this post office in 2001, 2002, when you took it over. So this technology that the post office had introduced. And what was that technology designed to do? Back in those days, a chip and pin hadn't come in. And basically, people would come along with their pension books, you tear out a little bit of paper, um, give them their money, and then you send all the the dockets off at the end of the week um, to Belfast. And then it it was things like that. Everything was paper-based. I didn't really have any problems until it became electronic. And that's when the problems start. So, <laughs> yes. so, so let, let's get into it then. I mean, you were accused of what? Stealing. I was accused of stealing £36,000. I had rung up on numerous occasions and said, this isn't right. And one time I rang up and I said, I've got this £2,000 discrepancy. And with the help of the help desk, it turned into four thousand pounds and then they said well your contract says you've got to pay it and it's like well I didn't owe two let alone four and they said well I'm sorry you've got to make it good so I said well I want the area manager to come out so he came out and I've subsequently seen the documents that say um, I actually can't find this but I think it will come out in the wash Um, I think an error notice will be generated and you had to wait 90 days for an error notice so you had to put the money in and make it good while you waited for an error notice Or they gave you a little docket which said you can put it into the suspense account um, until we've sorted it out. And then they didn't sort it out. And then they said, well, here you go. Here's the bill. (laughs) And you had to pay it. And when you didn't have it, they kept your wages. Just just to roll back. So at some point, something flagged to you that there was a discrepancy of £2,000 in in the balance of what should have gone out and come in, etc. And you instigated uh, an investigation by contacting the post office head office and said, hold on, something's wrong here and you don't know why. I mean, how did that come about? You have what you call a help desk and they're your first port of call. And what happens is you get to balance day and it tells you how much you have or haven't got in the till. And you can't actually open the next day. This is how they get you. Um, you can't open the next day unless you agree the figures. And to agree the figures, you either have to put the money in if it's short. You, you have to make it good. And it came up with minus £2,000 when I rolled it all over, what they call roll it over. You rolled it into the next balancing week. Um, it said I was minus £2,000. And it's like, well, how does that happen? <laughs> you know, but there, there was almost no way, well, there wasn't any way of checking it because everything, they held everything in the computer. So you called the help desk and, and highlighted this discrepancy. It, eventually, they sent someone out to have a look at your concern. And, and then all of a sudden, they doubled that figure to 4,000. How did it end up getting to 36,000? Well, what what happened is I, they kept my wages to repay that um, that shortfall. Then another one happened. I rang up and they said, well, you've got to make it good. So I was repaying that one. Then they sent me a letter saying, if you do this again, <laughs> basically your job's on the line. We, we'll sack you. This is a very serious offence. You know, you need to keep better records and everything else. So then it happened again with a smaller amount, which I made good. And then when it started to climb... Um, I would get to the end of the week and I would almost dread the what the figure that would come up and then I just let it get bigger <laughs> and bigger and bigger because I knew there was no way out because they said whatever it says, even if it said a million pounds, I'd have to put, put the money in. You know, it was bonkers and they were taking two lots of wages off me. Well, they were keeping all my wages basically until it was paid off. This, 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 I, 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 this is crazy. I, I can't understand how you must have been feeling at the time because you know these discrepancies are, are a technical hitch, must have been a technical hitch because nothing was going on in terms of a, a, a siphoning money off. It was off. only me. 
there's only you and, and, and I mean, but you were left with this huge burden of having to cover the cost of what they were saying was going missing. And you were doing that, Joe. I mean, you were pushing yeah. back, obviously. To question. start with, I was. <laughs> Why? Why did you do that? Well, there was a, a nine grand one came up and I then had to tell my, well, we all lived in the house. I lived, I shared a house with my parents and my husband. We bought it between the four of us. And I then had to say, I need to remortgage the house um, because I'm £9,000 short. And, you know, I mean, my mum and dad would have done anything for me, uh, honestly. They were such wonderful parents. And so we just remortgaged and put the money in. I couldn't explain it. I mean, thought if I rang the post office and told them I was £9,000 short and I'm putting the money in, they might do, because I had a 40-year lease on the shop. And I felt like I was in a no-win situation. They, they didn't ever question the fact that it might be the computer, even though I'd said, I can't get to grips with this. We'd had no training. It was honestly, it was like I was in this nightmare. And after the nine, I put the nine in and, and the money was in the corner of the safe and I just kept using it every week. I didn't order any more money because obviously the post office system said I had nine grand in there. So I didn't order any more money and I just gradually went through it and I ordered more money and it just kept climbing and climbing and I didn't know where to go to help for help and I let it get, you know, like you get the problem got so big that I thought if I say something, someone's going to think I've stolen something. If I don't say anything and I get caught, I, I hadn't done anything wrong, but I couldn't explain what on earth was happening or and I didn't know how to get out of it. And then my, my friend found me literally sobbing at 10 o'clock at night. I, I didn't know what to do because the post office had rung up and said, oh, we're concerned at the amount of cash you're holding. Um, we want you to remit 25000 in the morning. And I just, I knew then I was in massive trouble. And I didn't know how, why, you know. And honestly, I must have been a real numpty back in the day because I just thought, I thought it was the computer, but you, you kind of thought, well, the computer says it should be there. So why isn't it? I never, I never, I, well, I doubted myself before I doubted the computer. I knew, I, I thought I had to be doing something wrong. And yeah, <laughs> the rest is history. And, and there was nowhere, I mean, until your friend found you sobbing because you had nowhere else to turn. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand what what the post office were, were doing to support you, if anything, at this time, because it sounds to me that all they were trying to do was get you to pay the deficit that was in the, 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 the accounts. And you knew that it must have been the computer, although you were doubting yourself. That's quite a testimony to say that you started to doubt yourself. You knew you'd done nothing wrong, but all of a sudden you were feel, feeling quite guilty. Yeah, I felt like... I'd maybe put something in and then I'd doubled it somehow. I mean, the whole thing was crazy. I couldn't explain it. I thought, and I thought everyone was going to think I'd stolen money. And I, and I mean, I hadn't, but I just, I did doubt myself. I thought I must've done something horrendous with the computer. They did change the base unit three times and I never questioned it. The guy from Fujitsu came in and said, oh, we're taking this away and changing it with this one because it's not recording properly the other end. Well, if I hadn't been such a numpty, I would have re if I'd have been techie, I'd have thought, hello, <laughs> what are you taking? And it's like, you think, all oh, right, it's not working properly, change it. But I never realised, I just didn't realise, because we're talking 2003, 2004, where everything was a bit magic, you know, it was, yeah, <laughs> computer says no. <laughs> computer says no, but in fact, it, it, it was wrong. So in the end, tell me about what happened in the end. So there was this period of time where there was a deficit. You remortgaged your home. You were, um, how did you cover the cost of this deficit? Was it all from remortgaging your home or were you having to borrow money from your parents? I borrowed, I borrowed more money from a friend. Um, and then that's when I let the amount grow to 36,000. And it took probably just over a year to climb to that. And then when they rang up and said, we want you to remit 25000 in the morning, I'm like, oh, I, I knew I, it wasn't there. And that's when I, that was my wake up call. And my friend who'd lent me the money, she came in and she, she saw the light on because it was so late at night. And she said to me, you've got to stop this. This can't go on. You've got to ring up and I rang the Federation of Subpostmasters and told them you know that I had a large deficit and I couldn't account for it and so it hasn't been stolen I just don't understand what on earth has happened 
And I, I said I thought it was the computer and I thought either I was doing something wrong or um, it was the computer. But I, I, I had no explanation for it. And they said, well, you go get yourself a good criminal lawyer. And that's when my, <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and we'll, we'll arrange an audit. And I, unfortunately, one of my customers was a criminal lawyer because it's not the kind of thing you deal with every day. <laughs> you know, I never even had a parking ticket. I went to Izzy over the road and um, I said to her, I'm in big trouble. And she said, what, what do you mean you're in big trouble? I said, I've got a large deficit in the post office. And so she opens a bottle of wine. Well, <laughs> the pair of us. Good old bottle of, of wine solves yeah, the problem. The, the pair of us just drank. And then she said, I think you better come back tomorrow and we'll sort of talk about this sensibly. And this <laughs> and was the honestly, criminal lawyer, was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. She, I mean, she's lovely, really is lovely. So. It's good to know that you've got friends, but in a village of only 500 <laughs> people, everyone knows everyone. Now, at yeah. the time, at the time, Joe, that this was going on, you were isolated. You felt this was just yeah. you. I mean, I the hadn't reality- told my parents. I hadn't told my husband that the amount had grown to this massive amount because they thought it was all over when I put the nine grand in, and I hid it all from everybody. Why? Because why just- did you hide it? Because I just thought I must be doing something wrong. You know, I used to print stuff off. I'd have it all over the office, and I just I got to be doing something wrong. I mean, it was just bonkers. And then when it got bigger, I thought, oh, I can't, I can't ask for any more money, you know. And we couldn't afford the mortgage as it was because the interest rates were much worse than they are now. And I thought, well, how can I do that? You know, we're in jeopardy of losing the house. So, and I couldn't lose the shop either because I had a forty-year lease on it. And it, the whole, I, I was just, I felt like a, a rat trapped in a cage. Really, I just, it was terrifying. The whole, uh, the honestly, the whole thing was terrifying. And what was going on with you was not uh, isolated, was it? Because unbeknown to you, as it would have been to other people, this was happening across the country. There were other people who were in exactly the same predicament as you, different figures. You know, the deficit was very different in terms of what they may, um, what was missing in their post office, etc. But you were unaware of this. And even when you, as I understand it, even when people were reaching out to you know, the headquarters, if you like, the post office to question this or the auditors, no one was revealing that this was a problem across the across the country. That was the worst, because when the auditor came round the morning, because the Federation arranged an audit, and he came round to the house, and I, they come round to the house to see what they can take. And um, my mum stepped in and said, this is my house as well, you know. And he stopped looking then. He, he just said to me, there's a large deficit, where is it? I said, well, I haven't got it. I said, I've no idea what's going on and I cannot get to grips with the computer system. And he goes, well, you're the only person that's ever had problems with Horizon. (laughs) Uh, Literally, the same man I know has told many other people they were the only ones. Really? So he was being dishonest? Oh, yes. Oh my God, that is is shocking. You, you, You spoke to your friend who was a criminal lawyer. At what point... Did you face criminal um, proceedings? Well, she she said that we had to let them make the first move because they obviously sent me a letter saying there's 36 grand missing. Send, please send it by return of post. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I'll just write a check out. <laughs> and and um, so we ignored it because she said eventually you have to get them to do something. And then um, they, I don't know, I can, I can actually remember it so vividly. My mum rang me in the shop and she said, you better come home. She said, there's a letter here that I think you need to read. And it was my summons. And it just said that on or before whatever day, on the 9th of March 2006, you stole £36,000 in monies belonging to post office. And I can see it written on the on the paper. And I just, I, th- I thought I was going to be sick. I, I just, it was just, Wow this is really serious theft, you know, and 36 grand. Yeah, it was then I realised that it was proper serious and I wasn't going to get out of this very easily because I couldn't explain it. Well, this took it to a different level, didn't it? Because now you're being accused of theft as opposed to, I mean, 
I know all the time there was this deficit and there were questions about how this came about, but now there is something tangible that says, Joe Hamilton, you stole from the post office. And I can remember stole. It's like, oh, oh God, <laughs> I've never stolen anything in my life. <laughs> what happened next, Joe? Were you eventually taken to court? I got interviewed under caution by the post office. But Izzy was really good. She wouldn't let them, because they said you weren't allowed a, a solicitor. <laughs> you weren't allowed legal representation. You had to go with a friend. Well, she said, I'm not having that. So she said, and I'm not having you answer questions you can't answer. So she said, we'll do a prepared statement and they'll come to my office. And she let someone else, because we were friends, she said, I, it would be a conflict of interest for me to, well, she said, it wouldn't be professional for me to represent you. I will always oversee everything, but you need, I need to distance myself from it a little bit. And so another solicitor sat with me and she read out the statement and I just went, no comment, for two tapes. <laughs> I learned what that's like. <laughs> when I see it on the telly now, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> well, this is, well, this is just what I was going to say. You know, here, here is a woman who's never had as so much as a parking ticket is all of a sudden sitting in an interview room saying no comment like a hardened criminal would. I know, because my son's a detective and he... He um he obviously interviews lots of people who go no no comment for other reasons. <laughs> but she said, I can't I, I can't explain anything, so I can't let you answer questions. We need to get to the bottom of this. Um and clearly we didn't because they did a plea bargain in the end. And she said, Yeah, well I, that will come to that. But it it yeah, I did <laughs> two tapes. Oh, it was just awful. And I fixed my eyes on the desk so that I didn't make eye contact with him because it's really difficult. I mean, it, it just was so hard. And he was accusing me of stealing. And he said, is this your bank account? And I just was looking at the table going, no comment. And he was poking the paper underneath across the desk. Is this your bank account? So I went, no comment. <laughs> Where the natural answer would have been, yeah, just, it is my yes, bank account. Yes, it is. And there's no money in it, you silly git. <laughs> How frustrating was it at the time? Because I, I, I suspect this went on. How long did this go on before you eventually faced, you know, prosecution? I got then summoned. I think my interview under caution was in June. And I got, I went to court in December was my first. I went to magistrates. Uh, I went to magistrates twice. And then they sent me to Winchester Crown Court. <laughs> A whole new level. What was level. the charge? What was theft. the charge, Joe? What was theft? You were charged with theft. Yeah. Theft of thirty-six thousand pounds. Yeah, and the magistrate said it's not within our remit um, to sentence for that, so you have to go to Crown Court. So obviously, I then had, did a case management, and then shot off up to Winchester, <laughs> which is really scary. <laughs> and then I they went theft for the. F I pleaded not guilty because I never stole anything and I always pleaded not guilty. And then they did this plea bargain. So I, I think my first bit in Crown, March 2007, was my first bit in Winchester where I pleaded not guilty. And then they offered up a plea bargain just before it was going heading for trial. Um, they said, well, if you plead guilty to false accounting... Um, we'll drop the theft, but you have to repay all the money and not mention Horizon. And it's like... Really? The legal advice was they're going to get you for false accounting because basically for a whole year you signed off accounts you knew weren't accurate. So they're going to get you for it. So plead guilty and you're less likely to go to prison. I went, prison? <laughs> prison? <laughs> prison? <laughs> and uh, I remember the P word. It's like, oh, God, no. And oh, I was so scared of going to prison, honestly. I, I wish no one had told me and I'd have gotten. It would have been easier not to have been told and then gone rather than I had a whole almost, well, it was from six months of build-up thinking I, I probably will go to prison. And on my pre-sentence report, she said to me, you're 75% likely to go for this. You know that, don't you? So she said, you have to go with your bag packed. Be prepared. Say goodbye to all your family because you might, there's a very good chance you won't come home. <laughs> and I, I was like, uh, I could hear Izzy in my head going, don't look like you didn't do it. <laughs> She's, you can't look remorseful because <laughs> she said otherwise I'll put it back on trial for theft and she said we can't prove it because they won't disclose anything I mean the whole thing was a complete and utter stitch up and if I obviously if I knew then what I know now but I I would have changed it but 
I mean, technically, I guess I was guilty because I always thought I'd done something wrong. She said, well, basically for a year, you said there was money there that wasn't. It doesn't matter that it it wasn't you. You said there was money there that wasn't. And it's was like, well, yeah, I guess I did. So, so, so you pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of false accounting to avoid uh, uh, um, being prosecuted for the more serious allegation of, of theft. Um, and, and you pleaded guilty on the advice of the lawyers because, you know, you wanted to avoid obviously going to prison. And there was a bit of you that felt um, guilty because you had signed off pieces of paper or whatever it is you signed off um, that, that, that said there was something there that wasn't there. But I suspect that that act of signing things off was out of desperation because you couldn't answer how things had gone so wrong. You knew you didn't steal the money. Everybody else knew you didn't steal the money, but somehow you felt in order to, to keep your livelihood, to keep your shop, to not lose your home, etc., that you had to do something out of desperation. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. And I say, and they made me plead guilty, not just once, but they made me plead guilty 14 times. I understand that. And then they said that you, Josephine Hamilton, on that day, ple- uh, said there was, you know, they put 14 dates, they just plucked 14 dates out of the air. And they said that on that day, you said there was that amount there and, it, and there wasn't, how do you plead? guilty and I did it 14 times I was on my feet for about half an hour pleading guilty I mean it was like rubbing my nose right into it but the man who told me it was only me he was in court every time I was in court he was there Uh, and it was like he was I mean he didn't have to be there because post office had lawyers I mean that's what I don't understand now and he wrote a document that said there was no evidence of theft or deliberate cash-inflated figures. And yet every time I was in court, he was there, like, watching. Even came to my sentencing. And I don't understand that. I don't understand how a human being could do that, knowing that what they were doing was wrong. So this this report that he wrote saying there was no theft or etc., was that not made available to you and your no. defence at the time of your pleading guilty? No. No, that was only disclosed in the Court of Appeal. Oh, that, that, that is shocking. Also, during this period where you were pleading guilty 14 times to something you hadn't done, were you aware of the fact um, that others across the country were also being wrongly accused no. of um, stealing money from the post office? No, because they told us we were the only ones. Uh, you know, that, that, that was the first thing he said, you're the only one this has ever happened to. <laughs> and... And I mean, the beauty of the beauty of it was when I went to court for my sentencing. Seventy-four people from the village turned up, including the vicar, and she stood up in the witness box and said, "What a nice person I was," and everything. And and the whole thing was just so bonkers. Um, we came out of court, and there was a photographer there, and they. It ended up in the daily papers because they because I could only raise thirty grand on the house, and the village stumped up the other six grand. Can you believe? And it and my, the headlines were: "Village whip round saves fallen sub postmistress." <laughs> and but because of that, because the daily papers got hold of it, people started phoning the shop saying, "Well, I know someone else has happened to." And then we gradually. Because of the publicity, although at the time I, I was just, uh, I was so embarrassed, because of the publicity, we realised that we weren't alone. And we gradually formed this um, victims group that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and we are where we are now. But uh, <laughs> at the time, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be, and I was literally on the front of the local paper, splattered all over it. I went to get fuel for the car and... um there I was on the counter, and who was the front page? <laughs> it's like fraudster. I was the village fraudster. <laughs> well, you laugh now, but I can't imagine what it must have felt like for you in such a small village at the time. You know, you can, in hindsight, look back and laugh because it was all wrong. But at the time, oh. even though you had the support of your villagers, your fellow villagers, including the vicar who came to court, etc., even even with that support, it must have been really difficult for you and your family because there's always this shadow yeah. 
even when people believe in you, there must have been this shadow. Not everybody would have believed in me. And people who didn't know me wouldn't have believed in me. You know, it's stealing at the end of the day or it's being dishonest. And I'd never done anything dishonest in my life. And I like to think I'm a kind person and, and I just wouldn't do that. But... You know, that's what I was labelled. Then I went to the dentist and someone saw my logo on my shirt and in the dentist and he said to me, oh, you're from that shop. And I, th- and I thought he recognised me. And I said, yeah. And he goes, God, they treated that woman really badly. Anyone with half a brain can realise it's a computer system. And I was like, oh, because <laughs> I thought he was going to say, you know, that's terrible. But no, he was actually on my side. But I know there's a few people that would have thought, hello, what's she been doing, you know? And and it's, I can't imagine what it's like if you are actually, if you didn't have the support, because I felt bad enough and a lot of people pitched up and supported me. But imagine if the village went the other way. I can't imagine what it was like. I'm interrupting this midpoint to let you know this podcast is also available for viewing on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast. So if you want to enhance your listening experience with the visuals, check it out. I also wanted to ask for your support to help me grow the podcast. All you have to do is click on the subscribe and like button wherever you listen to the Second Chance podcast. If you can spare another few minutes to comment and rate the show, that'd be brilliant. By doing so, you'll be assisting us in bringing in more guests and creating more content for the show. It only takes a second, but it makes all the difference. Thank you. You mentioned that as the publicity demonised you, it also garnered the support that was necessary to prove that this was happening across the country and inquiries were being made people were saying oh I know who this has happened to somebody else and so you 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 formed this victims group um and and this was the start of your your kind of pushback your fight back tell me a little bit more about that then Uh, you know who was the first person that you if you can remember the first person that you connected with who like yourself a postmaster or postmistress says oh my god that happened to me so I'm, I'm just trying to get at the first conversation you had with someone like yourself joe to make you realize that you were never alone even though you felt alone throughout this journey even with the support i can imagine when you're alone on the toilet in the kitchen brushing your teeth um regardless of all the support it's in your mind it's in your heart it's it's a stigma that has now stained you but all of a sudden you're discovering somebody else has been stained by the same technical problems of Horizon, this computer system that got it so wrong. Yeah, Alan Bates was the first person I spoke to. And, you know, he told me that he knew of other people. And we, that's how, that's how it started. Um, and the Welsh BBC Wales did a TV programme. And I was on that with Noel Thomas, who'd gone to prison for exactly the same thing that I'd gone for. Um, he's pleaded guilty and, and gone to prison. And the whole thing started and that mushroomed then. And in 2009, we then had enough people to have a meeting and we sent out invites to all the people that, that we knew or Alan did. And we met in this little village hall in Fenny Compton and uh, we all shared the stories. And my, my criminal lawyer who lives in the village, she came and she couldn't believe her eyes. She said, I've never sat in a room full of so <laughs> people who just did not look like criminals. We were all kind of middle-aged or, and we'd all been pillars of our community. And she said, you know, I, she'd had, I think, 20 odd years in criminal justice. And she said, none of you fit, fit any of the, you know, she said, you just don't look like criminals. And she realized then something was wrong. So she started to get help for us and put us in touch with another law firm and and gradually we just the whole thing snowballed um but then that then that made me so angry so angry and when you hear the stories I mean I got off lightly because the villa the shop was leased and the house belonged to my parents too but they've taken people's houses they've literally destroyed people and that just that has lit a fire and it's still burning because they're still trying not to pay the group that took them to court. And I just, I, I can't stop. I cannot stop until everybody is sorted out. What did you do? 
What did you do, Joe, to, to have your conviction? Because I know now your conviction has been overturned. T- tell me a little bit about how, you, you know, because this didn't go on for a year or two years. This went on for, for many, many years. I mean, tell me about, you know, in all that. So there was a period where you pleaded guilty and then no doubt there was the the quiet. I say the quiet, but you were living now with this criminal conviction something for something you yeah. didn't do. Tell me a little bit about what happened over the years. Well, we got, we got my MP then, um, James Arbuthnot, Lord Arbuthnot now. He's, he stood by us and he still is by us all the way. Um, and he, he got a few more MPs that had had similar things happen to their constituents. And he got a, eventually we got a mediation scheme set up with the post office. And, and then it was clear that they actually weren't going to mediate with anyone, which was 90% of us who had criminal records. So they'd spent all this money commissioning this mediation scheme and setting up a forensic report. And when the forensic accountants got a bit close to the truth, they sacked them and said they didn't know what they were talking about, having spent millions of pounds. And they, well, they tipped the, it was like tipping the board up at the end of a Monopoly game if you're not winning. <laughs> they just literally threw everything up in the air and, and collapsed it. So that was then, by then it was 2015. And then basically, because I met a very nice lady in the next village, as a village do, who's a very professional lady, um, she got together with Alan. We, we picked him as the leader because he's much better with paperwork than I am. The two of them got together and they literally went round law firms until they found someone who would take us on, who could get the funding to take post office to court because it was clear we weren't going to get it from the MP route because they could just basically do what they liked. And it took from 2016, I think, was when we applied for the group litigation order. That was granted in 2017. And then the trial began in 18. I mean, it's just, it's like forever. And then it didn't finish till December 19. And in the, um, because technically it was settled and a full and final settlement, which was almost all of the money was swallowed up in fees, he, the, the judge carved out the people with criminal records and said it wasn't full and finally settled for the 36 of us because we had the right to get our convictions quashed. So then that started off another court, <laughs> another court battle. So we then went off to the Court of Appeal and we've now got a chance. I've had an interim payment, which is life changing, um, and I've got a chance of getting compensation. But the people that weren't prosecuted, but literally destroyed every bit as much as me, apart from having a criminal record, they're not going to get any more money. So it's just wrong on every level. And so, yeah, it's taken forever. And I'm still not there. We're still in negotiations with them. We, we've given them the claim. They've sent it back and it's gone backwards and forwards like ping pong. And it is a process. Hopefully it'll end this year, but. For those that were in the 555 who weren't um, criminally prosecuted, they've been told they're not going to get any more money. Well, that's just wrong. So we can't stop until everyone's compensated. And I think in the end, they'll have to give up. But why don't they just give up and stop spending money on lawyers? Because just... that's what that's what they do. Uh, yeah. um, and and that's, so that's your compensation challenge. When did you first find out? The, the, the computer system that they installed in 1999, Horizon, was actually responsible for everything that happened to you and the 700 and more other post office workers. In the 2019 judgment from Justice Fraser, honestly, if you get a chance, read it. It's fabulous. I mean, a lot of it is very readable. Some of it's a bit... <laughs> but a, a lot of it is very readable. And he basically took it apart he really did hammer them over it. I mean, and it was quite clear people were um, being economic with the truth, shall we say. Even in court, some post office people had to leave the room and then come back in and change their answer. <laughs> and it's like, stop lying. <laughs> just, you know, I just, there's one thing I've learned is lies don't get you anywhere. <laughs> eventually the truth comes out and you could see it you could see we had a select committee back in 2015 and and it's like if you just look at it you look at the lies that are being told but they do it in such a way that they're not blatantly lying they're just 
kind of not quite telling the truth. It came out in court. It was so obvious, and Justice Fraser has blown them out of the water. And so, is, we, is, is this the po- you're, you're talking about the people who represented the post office? Yeah, yeah, right. So his judgments were so bad against post office and they appealed everything and tried to sack him halfway through the second trial. And it's like, at what point are you going to give up? You know, like if you're losing, it's, it's, it was clear they were losing. So they just threw everything at it. But that's money, you know, and it's people's lives that is all being dragged on and on and on. And so then we, we then in 2000 and 2020, we started the process of meeting the net on the next phase of our journey. Then we, we met up with Hudgels, uh, Neil Hudgel, who's quite awesome. And the firm have represented us brilliantly. And we got our convictions quashed April last year. So tell um, me about your particular case. You say we. What about Joe Hamilton? Tell me about how your conviction was overturned. How did that come about? Well, you go through the motions, you fill in all the paperwork, but when you read the disclosure, whatever they send you your stuff on file and you, and you open it and read it. And when you read a document that was written not long after I got sacked, saying, having examined all the Horizon evidence, I can find no or Horizon paperwork, I can find no evidence of theft or deliberate cash-inflated figures. And he forwarded it to the solicitor for advice on the sufficiency of the evidence as to what charges they should bring against me. And then someone charged me with theft. It's like, oh, in 2008, and it's now 2022, and it's taken this long to prove I didn't do anything, you know? And I know I didn't, and they knew I didn't do anything. And that just makes me, it's a mixture of emotions. I, I'm really angry, but I'm also sad because my parents both had strokes and died. Um, they had, both had strokes within three months of each other, and then they both got cancer. And we nursed them at home until they died. And, uh, and they died before you were able to prove that... Yeah. I mean, they knew you were innocent, but before you were yeah. able to clear your name. That is shockingly my, sad. My dad knew I'd never stop fighting, and I promised him. And my mum literally died four days before the first case management conference for the trial. I promised her I'd go. And I literally went four days after she died. It was the most surreal day. And I can, I went up to the Rolls building and I sat and listened to the first, or almost in a blur. I, the whole thing was just, but I promised her I'd go and I'd never stop. And I listened to it. And I mean, none of it really meant anything because my mum was dead and she didn't get a chance to see me, you know, cleared. But I know they're up there <laughs> watching me and I, I promised them I'd see it through to the end. But, you know, and my friend Julian, he he came to my dad's funeral. He's a post. He was a sub postmaster, and he came. He's had his pick line put in because he got cancer, and he came to my dad's funeral the day after he'd had his pick line put in. He goes, "Don't worry, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to be there to see the end." And he didn't. You know, and it's things like that that. And the the problems they've caused, and the people that have died, two people have committed suicide. It's just wicked. So I can't stop ever. And <laughs> not until everyone's sorted out. What what year was your conviction quashed and were you at the Court of Appeal to hear that? I mean, how did that manifest yeah. itself? Oh, what a day. I, I went for the three days leading up to it, which were in the March, and then in, in April the 23rd, 2021, my conviction was quashed. And most of us were there. And it was the most bonkers day. It was just so when you when you listen to the judge reading out the names. He, I mean, he didn't just say like everyone here, everyone in this is all their convictions are quashed. He read everyone's name out, and when he the length of the list was just staggering. And that's the start of it. This was the start of it. There's hundreds more whose lives have been totally trashed. 
So, so that I understand this, there were a number of you who were prosecuted and convicted, pleaded guilty or were found guilty for a number of different offences, but mainly to do with admitting, like you did, to um, what what was it that you admitted false to? False accounting. Yeah. So everybody who pleaded guilty to false accounting or were convicted of false accounting, if that's what happened, their convictions were quashed, and that was hundreds. And then there was another few hundred people who were accused but never prosecuted there was there was 30 39 of us on the day got our convictions i think it was 39 i better check that but uh, there was 39 of us on the day we got our convictions overturned but then there was a there was six before us there was 39 of us then there was another six or seven following that and there's more to come, and there's supposed to be seven, seven, another seven hundred and thirty-six people after us who they've convicted wrongly, and yet there's no. It's almost like, oh yeah, that's in the court of appeal, but but it's like these are people, you know, and it's hundreds of people. <laughs> there's no no one actually gets the seriousness of what they've done, but the 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 poor group that went to court that didn't actually get prosecuted but lost everything, the group that were in the 555 high court case, they don't stand to get any more money. We got, we, we ended up with £11 million to be split between 550 of us. But some people, well, there was a guy at the select committee uh, just before Christmas with me and he'd actually given them more than £100,000 but he didn't get prosecuted. They didn't prosecute him. But then he gets 20 grand back from the, the settlement because the litigation funding to actually get it, you have to repay four pounds for every one pound you borrow. So if someone with a bottomless pocket um, comes along and fights you, they can just run up costs and they know you're never going to win because the money's all going to be swallowed up. So basically, that's what they did. They basically messed around in court for so long that it they knew whatever we settled for, we'd never get any money out of it. But no, unfortunately, and it's all done it. It's all taxpayers, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the funders dropped off some of their money, and the lawyers didn't take a success fee, which left us with eleven million. Otherwise, we'd actually have owed them, which is bonkers. Out of sixty or fifty-eight million, you know, it's like it's nuts, and no one, and no one realizes it. But the the whole thing's madness. The the they're paying both sides of the argument. They're paying. You know they're paying money to defend it, but they're paying money, so they've lost. So it's hundreds of millions of pounds. I mean, it's it's, it's all an attempt to, to to you know face safe. Can I just summarise then, Joe? So you're accused, you plead guilty for something you didn't do. Eventually, your conviction is overturned and your innocence is proven you are um, temporarily or at least interimly compensated for the ordeal that you went through. So where are you at now? I know that you said you have not given up and will not give up, give up fighting for other people who deserve to have their convictions overturned and for people to be compensated rightly for, for losing everything that they've lost. Um, you know, and we're not talking about hardened criminals here. We're not talking about people who have um, caught, We're talking about people like yourself, pillars of society, people who live in small villages who, you know, Middle England, if you like, being wrongly accused on a, on a grand scale. But where are you at now in your own life, not in terms of your fighting for people's compensation, for more compensation for yourself, for people to have their convictions overturned. But I mean, psychologically, emotionally, where are you in your life? Because this has dragged on for 15, 20 years. Yeah, I, literally, I'm on the doorstep of retirement. Well, I'm 64 now. I was 45 when it started. Um, so they've taken probably the best years because... There's a, there's a time, isn't there, where, they, where your children are old enough to look after themselves, and your parents don't need you. And but I can't I can't look back. I have to look forward. Much as I can be angry about everything, they're going to win if they consume me for the rest of my life. So I now I treated myself with my interim payment. I put some of it away because I don't know how long I'm going to have to wait for the rest. I cleared all the debt. The people in the village that lent me money, people that I owed, I've paid all that off. And I gave myself a little treat. And I've, <laughs> I've, I always wanted, I've, I've got a horse that I've managed to keep 
throughout the whole thing, but I can't ride him anymore. So I've bought myself a little horse <laughs> and I've, I've now gone back to competing at the grand age of 64. Oh, wow. I was out last night and I, yeah, I just, I just thought, right, I, I'm not going to let them destroy me because, you know, I have to look forward, but it doesn't stop me fighting for what, you know, I will fight to the end. I'm still, I'm doing cleaning because no one's going to take me on at 64. <laughs> I did think I might do a law degree because I'm absolutely fascinated and I know it's completely pointless, but I think I want to tick a box because I don't know. I realize how little you actually know about the law until you need it. And by then it's too late. And and I would like to think that maybe if I live long enough, that you could work for somebody like the CAB and give back. Because I just think if you, if you had more knowledge, knowledge is power. And I, yeah, I realised how little I knew about everything. Um, and so I'd like to help people. And that's so interesting, because coming from a place that you come from, in terms of being accused of, of something you didn't do, being able to advise someone in the same position that you found yourself in at the beginning of their journey. Um, you, you know, you stand as an inspiration that, you know, you didn't know what was going on. You didn't live in this world. All of a sudden you found yourself propelled into this situation. But now you can advise other people. And, and, and that's a powerful testimony. So good luck with that. I hope that that people can take from your experience. Just just one final question from me. You've been accused, given the, the theme of this book, you've been accused um, and have overcome that, as have many others who were wrongly accused of being involved in this post office scandal. Do you accuse anybody as a result of what you went through? I could understand if there was a financial gain for a person, why they do something horrible to someone else. What I don't get is why, if you worked for the post office, why would you do that? You know, I, I still don't understand that bit. I don't understand how a human being, I understand how people can be nasty to people. And for financial gain, I understand why someone would do nasty things to people, but not if you worked for the post office, who are a government body, basically, I mean, why, why would you do that to an ordinary individual? You know, I, that's what I don't understand. So yeah, I think people should be held to account. And I have my doubts whether they will. But it would be nice to think that someone felt a little uneasy. Because I tell you, leading up to court is not funny. <laughs> it really is a scary place. And I would like to think that someone might feel a little of what we, what happened to us. You know, as for prison, I don't think any anybody will go to prison. But I can, I can live with that. But I'd like them to be a little bit worried. I'd like them to have to answer very awkward questions in front of a judge. You know, that would be the ultimate to just watch them squirm a bit because it's not very nice. <laughs> well, I mean, what's really interesting is what you said about, you know, there was an audit um, and the person who prepared that report said there was nothing untoward and yet they still pursued a prosecution against you in the face of evidence that proved you hadn't done anything. And that's quite typical of what happens in other criminal cases where the non-disclosure yeah. of significant material evidence that proves something's not right is never quite um, revealed in its true um, in its true sense. But what's more shocking is the individual behind that report yeah. who could at any point step forward with some integrity and said, you cannot accuse this person of doing something that they didn't do that I've discovered. You know, so this person was charged, as you said at the beginning, with auditing your post office and they reached the conclusion that there was nothing untoward. And yet that person didn't stand up and be counted. No, That's why I, I find know. shocking. Yeah, and, and when you read it, it says, having examined all the printouts, I can't find any evidence of theft or deliberate cash-inflated figures. And it's like, so I'm forwarding, and then it has a load of spiel, and then it goes, so I'm forwarding you, this to you for advice on the sufficiency of the evidence for to bring forward charges. It's like, at what point do they, why do they say, charge me with theft? <laughs> when there's no evidence uh, and you just I look at that and I think that has just cost sort of 18 years of my life and and everything that went with it I mean uh, it's made me a stronger person 
And yeah, it has changed me, probably changed me for the better. I just wish I hadn't have gone through all the rubbish in the middle. But, you know, to not have any money is, is just, well, to just worry about the mortgage and keeping all the balls in the air, just working myself off the face of the earth to keep it all going. Thanks for tuning into the Second Chance podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. Quick reminder that you can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. You can also listen to my interview with Joe in my audiobook, You Are Accused, also available on Audible. Click the link in the description or search for You Are Accused by Raphael Rowe to get your copy. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J. Rowe Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in.